Now to the book of 1 Samuel. Today we are in chapter 21. Actually, I think we're in chapter 20. No, we're in chapter 21. I got the wrong sermon. No, I don't. I have the right sermon. Trying to wake you up. Continuing a series on David, a man after God's own heart. And now I know why. Okay. And uh, we're looking at David, who is being pursued by Saul, as one uh, really bright fellow said, uh, the words of verses 21:10a sum up the next few chapters. David rose up and fled on that day from before Saul. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading in verse, uh, chapter 21. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand. But there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Don't forget about Doeg. You will hear more about him later. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate 
and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Agilom. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him, and everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not, do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that your Holy Spirit who breathed out this word into the hearts and minds of the writers of Scripture, we do pray that this word will work in your midst. Uh, we know that wherever you send your word, it prospers and accomplishes your purposes. And we pray the Spirit and the word would work in tandem in our souls today to bring about whatever our need is, to speak to us, Sometimes to convict us, sometimes to comfort us, sometimes to lift us up, sometimes to break us down. But through all of it, may you give us life, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. David is on the run, that's obvious. And he knows for certain that King Saul's intent to murder him has passed from an occasional a toss of the spear to, to a congealed, hardened uh, heart and a fixed purpose. Saul's hatred is no longer a matter of black moods that will eventually pass, and his jealousy can no longer be treated as a personal matter that he can be expected to get over as long as David pr uh, proves that he's loyal to Saul. Now a price is on David's head. The killing of David has turned into a cause. A state policy has uh, to be implemented impersonally. Until now, life in Saul's court had been very dangerous for David. But the danger was always laced with a little bit of hope. Hope that the king would be brought back from the dark regions of jealousy and rage, steadied and calmed and healed by sweet singing and loyal service. So now David's on the run. He's running. He runs without having a chance to pack his bags, without the benefit of uh, planning. He's running for his life. And where does he run? He runs to Nob, where there's a sanctuary and a priest. And so as we begin to look at this particular portion of David's life, let me just clear something up right away. David flat out lies four or five times in this passage. I don't mean shades the truth. I don't mean dissembles a little bit. 
he tells, where I come from, bald-faced lies. Now, he's under pressure, surely. He's struggling. But there's something I want to say and bring to your attention about characters in the Bible. There's really only one hero in the Bible. One. And his name is Jesus. David is not your hero. David is just like you. And this is a place in the story of David where we notice that he is not a moral model for us to copy. David isn't a person whose actions uh, we're inspired to imitate. In the company of David, we don't feel inadequate because we know we could never do it that well. Just the opposite. In the company of David, we find someone who does it badly as or worse than we do. But in, who in the process never quits, never withdraws from God. Eugene Peterson says this about David. David isn't an ideal life, but an actual life. We imaginatively enter the company of David not to improve our morals, but to deepen our sense of human reality. This is what happens in the grand enterprise of being a fallen human being. Re-entering through my believing imagination the world of David, I moor myself and free to be myself and able to find God in the middle of what's going on right now. The David stories aren't moral lessons telling me what to do or inspirational talks prodding me to set my sights higher. Rather, they are flesh and blood, true stories of a guy just like you, just like me, struggling to find his way. There's only one we can look to and depend upon and rely upon to be our model. And that is, of course, we all agree, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so David is desperate here, and in his desperation, he acts desperately. Uh, Everything for him is sort of nip, nip and tuck and by the skin of his teeth. And the stretch of the narrative seems to have a quiet answer to a question we often ask. The text seems to say that even in our most desperate moments, Yahweh does not let go of his servants. Least of all, David, the king-elect. And there is some evidence for this contention. David comes to Nob, and apparently uh, the primary sanctuary site at that time was in Nob, one or two miles north of Jerusalem. Ahimelech, the priest, smells something wrong here. He, he, he sees it. Otherwise, why would he tremble in the presence of David? Why was David alone and so on? Somebody who had been pursued by Saul wouldn't necessarily uh, leave without at least some kind of group of protectors with him and around him. Though some readers may judge differently, I think David's story is rather flimsy. He tells Abimelech on a highly sensitive government assignment, or he is, he tells Ahimelech, that he is on some secret government assignment and his papers are top secret and that is the reason why he's traveling alone. Though to be sure, he does have a cadre of men waiting to meet him later. Perhaps David convinces us here, but he makes us skeptics when he tells Ahimelech that the king's mission was so urgent he left without his sword or any weapons. 
He sounds like an insurance salesman coming to see you without any requisite forms. He's not prepared. David needs food. He needs weapons. But his cover story is less than satisfying. There are enough difficulties with this interchange, but things get worse. We wince in fear in verse 7. The literary camera turns to show the briefest clip of the narrowed eyes and the curled lip of a guy named Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's lackey. And in a momentary glance, but it sends a shudder up the reader's spine, all the more if you've cheated and read ahead in the next chapter. But David uh, did not tell Ahimelech he was fleeing from Saul. Then Ahimelech could rightly claimed that he knew nothing of David's renegade status at the time he helped him. And so some have tried to get David out of the lie by saying, no, David's intent was really to protect King, uh, the, the priest, Ahimelech, by not giving him any information that he could be held responsible later. Of course, we will see that, uh, that, that doesn't fly very well for him. David's story may have been an attempt to protect Ahimelech in any case, The text neither condemns nor justifies David for his conduct. Um, Ralph Davis said the Bible would prove a boring tome if in every suspense-filled narrative it turned aside to provide moral, ethical evaluations. That is all that would be happening. We can understand David's difficulty and even his panic. He seems at his wit's end. And certainly at the edge of his life, he's walking, as it were, on a razor blade, on the edge of a razor blade. But we do better to ask a different question. What does God seem to be doing here with his anointed king? By the way, have you thought about this? David was anointed to be king long ago, and it just hadn't happened yet. Have you ever received or are looking for a promise of God, and it just hasn't happened yet? And you're struggling with that in the in-between time, in the time of trust and fulfillment. You're finding yourself sort of at your wit's end, wondering why God hasn't delivered. But what, what is God doing here? And we note the confusion and danger and fear. David, in the midst of all of that, received daily bread. It is too much to say the text depicts something simple, namely that Yahweh sustained him. Every Sabbath... The tabernacle, by the way, was at this point in Nob. And every Sabbath, uh, 12 loaves of bread were piled on the table in the north side of the holy place in the tabernacle. They were, among other things, a quiet witness that Yahweh sustains his people and supplies their needs. In 1 Samuel 21, Ahimelech's holy bread becomes David's daily bread. Some scrupulous reader may object and complain that David in all his finagling, all his lying, all his deception does not deserve this provision. What else is new? When do we ever deserve provision? David's acting like a sinner and yet God meets his need. How about you? How about me? What's new about that? Nothing. Okay? We need to get off the moral high horse and admit truth. We all struggle. And God yet provides with him in a very unusual way, giving him the holy bread. Even something more interesting is going on here. 
The very idea that the priest in the tabernacle gives David some of this bread that's in the presence of the Lord is used to authenticate the reality of David being king. Because you remember Saul, as he was anointed to be king, also received bread. And so this, even in the midst of David's panic, even in the midst of his lying, even in the midst of his deception, God provides for him and authenticates his kingship. How about that? Sounds like you and me, doesn't it? We never go before the Lord deserving anything. And the biggest thing wrong with us is we ever thought we deserved it the first time. Some of us are very bitter at God, very resentful toward God, because he hasn't come through on our plan. You know, the Campus Crusade had a track years ago that said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, that wonderful plan for your life sometimes is not so wonderful. Sometimes it's a hard life. It's a hard knock life. It's a struggling life for many of us, if not all of us. And so it isn't like we have a quid pro quo arrangement with God. I'll keep my end of the bargain. You keep yours. But you better deliver on your end of the bargain or I'm going to hate you the rest of my life. And I'm going to get sour and bitter. No, anything ever comes to you is by God's grace and God's grace alone. And so David, I didn't know I was going to say all that. Somebody needed to hear that. Hopefully. <laughs> Maybe it's me that needed to hear it. Some, uh, you may object, and this, this does seem a little irregular. Uh, you're not supposed to get that showbread. Nobody's supposed to eat that. Uh, but when everything is scraped down to the bone, we receive our daily bread, not because we're godly, but because Yahweh is gracious. There may well be a word in David's provision for the contemporary Christian. We may be under a very heavy load, boxed in, pressed down, under various vocational, emotional, spiritual, or circumstantial pressures. But I'm eating every day at least once. God is sustaining me. God is providing for me. Never assume that God has cast you off. I matter and you matter to him. It may not go the way we've plotted it, but it goes the way God is providing it. And then we see uh, something else. Happened. Now, by the way, Jesus addresses this issue with the Pharisees. His disciples are walking on the Sabbath, and they uh, rub some grain to eat. And, of course, the Pharisees go ape over that because that's working on the Sabbath. And they, uh, then Jesus refers to this incident in the life of David to prove that God cares more about mercy than uh, circumstantial ritual or ceremonial ritual. He cares more about mercy. And so he provided for his runaway king. Now let's look at the next thing, because David jumps out of the frying pan into the fire, because where does he go? He goes to Gath. Where's Gath? Philistine land. Who was from Gath? Goliath. Maybe there's a Mrs. Goliath there. Who knows? But everybody knew who David was. He's going there to sort of hide out. He's going there to be a persona non grata. And yet, he is that, but even more before he leaves. But he goes, and he uh, sees what's going on. Whatever possessed David to flee to Achish, the king of Gath, and it's, it's like, it doesn't make any sense 
Yet here's David showing up in Goliath's hometown with Goliath's sword along with him, apparently hoping to find some kind of safety or sanctuary. I suppose David was thinking Achish would welcome the defection of Saul's prized lieutenant, but Achish's servants and advisors saw it very differently, which was no surprise. What, for example, would be the wisdom of the widows of the Philistine army to think about David being there. And David, in, in his hurry as he was, had probably weighed such reasons. The fact that he still took the risk indicates how desperate he was. When Achish is my best hope, I'm in real trouble. And this guy's in real trouble here. Achish's advisors could not be accused of cultural provincialism. At least they had listened to the Israelite music and vividly remembered the lyrics of the song. Saul had killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. But David had every reason to be very afraid. And in verse 12, his hopes had flopped. And under arrest, confined and taken into custody, David now... Uh, recognizes that he is in their hands. But David does an Academy Award performance of a crazy guy. He starts acting out in rather stupid ways. He turns to acting, and it proves fairly convincing. He dabbles nonsense graffiti on the doors of the town gate and lets spit run down his beard, and Achish got another uh, crazy around him and so he doesn't have any a quota for such folks or he's already reached the quota for such folks and apparently confinement ceased and David was permitted to go on his slobbering way. Now some people think that what David is doing here is a warrior dance. I don't know. I know that uh, some college football teams that have a lot of Samoans on their team were known before the game to entertain and engage in some sort of Samoan warrior dance. And whether David's doing that or not, but apparently it was enough gyrating and uh, scribbling on the, the gates and enough spit in his beard to where Achish draws the conclusion, we don't need any more nuts and crazy people here. Get him out. And so David gets out. David's on the loose again. Now, we must not call this episode David's folly and sigh about how lucky he was at this point to get out. Our response should be governed by David's own response. And according to the headings of Psalm 34 and Psalm 56, these psalms arose in the wake of this fiasco at Gath. And I just so happen to have a copy. In your bulletin, you will see the Psalm 34 one. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear me and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. And then in 34 verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be 
condemned. Powerful. You could also read Psalm 50, uh, what did I say, 50... Six. I think I said 56, didn't I? All right, well, we're not through yet. David escapes to a cave near Agilom, a town in the low hills west of Judah and 12 miles east out of Gath. His brothers and family were probably fearful of Saul's vindictiveness, so they came to Agilom and they joined David there. They were not the only ones who came. A motley kaleidoscope of social riffraff and malcontents, people in debt and distress, began filtering to David. At this time, 400 of them looked to David as their captive. Ruling all Israel might not be much more difficult than controlling and molding such a ragtag body into an army. But that's who gathered. It's as if David is planting a church. And the people are coming. <laughs> but the people who are coming are not impressive here. They are people themselves who are in a struggle. They are people themselves who are under immense pressure. And yet they go to David. He's the anointed one. He's the one lifted up to be king. And they go to him just like the lame, the least, the last, the broken were the ones who flooded to Jesus. Why? Because he makes us new creations, as Jonathan read in our time of confession of sin from that uh, fantasy story, the fact that he would take all of these broken people, broken in every way, and make them new. That's the gospel. And the truth is, there's no one not that way. We're all that way. Uh, some of us don't know it. Some of us see ourselves through a different pair of glasses. But this is the group that flocked to David. And if I was David, I might be thinking, is this what I get to help me out of this jam? But apparently desperate people are really good fighters. And uh, that's what he got, a ragtag bunch. However, our primary interest here centers on the arrangements David made for his parents. You listen to this carefully. I thought this was amazingly powerful. His parents had to be certainly up in years. Um, and the thrill and chill of running from Saul was not exactly what they needed to do every day. Therefore, David went to the king of Moab, east of the Dead Sea, and asked that his parents be given sanctuary until David might discover what God will do with me. David must have felt much relief to obtain the refuge for his parents. In contrast to Saul and Achish, here's one king who gives him aid. There may have been a reason why the king of Moab proved so helpful. One can hardly keep from remembering that Ruth, the Moabitess, was David's great-grandmother. Naturally, we cannot be sure how heavily this fact weighed upon the king of Moab, but we may assume it must have counted for something. It had some sort of influence over him. Having a tad of Moabite blood in his veins certainly wouldn't hurt David's case. Our text does not dogmatize on this particular connection, but it does suggest to a person who's read the Bible carefully that... Uh, David's Moabite ancestress may have aided his request for asylum for his parents. 
Doesn't this put a new light on the events recorded in the book of Ruth? Does it not shed light on Naomi's trial? You remember Naomi, the bitter one who had lost everything. And yet her trial, I don't know how many, hundred, uh, probably a hundred years after all of those events, is now comes, quote, the payoff. Now comes God's goodness that she would have never envisioned, she would have never seen. Something may be happening you, to you right now in your life, and you cannot make any sense of it. You don't know it from heads or tails. And it may be a hundred years later, if we live and do well and are here, that God does something because of what happened to you. We're so short-sighted. You see, I only look at what's happening to me and how it's affecting me and never thinking about how God may be using this way beyond me and years beyond me. And yet he does it right here as David's parents are taken care of by the Moabites. You know, uh, Naomi lost her husband. She, she lost her sons. Uh, she was facing a life of poverty and destitution. Uh, on her one daughter-in-law's insistent faithfulness, on the quiet twist of circumstances by which Ruth came to Boaz's attention, and so on, all that formed the perfect backdrop so that David could nicely and cogently appeal to the king of Moab now. Old Naomi could have never had a clue that her suffering would bear much fruit for one of her descendants over a century later. So now, we come to the final point in our message today. Uh, but who, who could have ever guessed that years after all of this, God in his providence and in his direction of uh, secondary and primary causes, he being the primary, was able to provide this for David years after the fact. But let's look finally at David's desperation and prophecy. Where did Gad come from? <laughs> he just sort of shows up in verse 5 of chapter 22. Was he one of Samuel's prophets? Well, we don't know that for sure. In any case, what difference does a passing reference to an unknown prophet make in the life of David? And the answer to that question is quite easy, an enormous difference. This verse shows that Yahweh gives David direction and special guidance through a prophet. Why is that so significant? Because Saul never did and would never do it and never enjoyed a privilege such as this. Saul was a man on his own, shut up with, uh, with his own wits, a man without direction from God. He had no light in his misery, but the gleams of God's guidance shine on David through the counsel of the prophet Gad. As we all know, desperation is not fun. But desperation and silence are unbearable. Being in the slimy pit is one thing. But if you can hear your shepherd's voice, you can be comforted. You can be comforted. David heard that voice directly through the prophet Gad. God's people still hear that voice, the scripture tells us. Throughout the prophetic word made sure, 2 Peter 1, 19-21, we still hear in the scriptures and rejoice through endurance and encouragement the scriptures give. They have hope. 
How does God speak to me today? How does God guide me today? How does God encourage me today? How does he lift me up today? Primarily, though not exclusively, but primarily through his word. When the teaching of the word and the preaching of the word and the uh, empowerment of the Holy Spirit fosters hope in us when we hear the promises preached, when we hear the gospel preached, then we're lifted up, we're encouraged, we're helped greatly. We receive hope. That's why it's so important to, to be under the preaching of the Word. That's why it's so important for you to be reading the Word of God regularly because the Word of God is a means by which grace is communicated to you. And the thing is, we catch ourselves in desperation, we get knocked off balance, uh, so many things are coming at us, we don't know what to do next, we're, we're sort of shut up to ourselves, and we're just sinking, and we're losing it. And God says, open my word. I will speak to you. I will speak to you personally in your situation. I will give you my promises. I will foster and engender hope in you through my word. Do you? read the Bible? Do you go to the Word of God regularly? Do you sit under the Word of God regularly? Our lives fall apart without it. It's bread for our souls. Yahweh does uphold His desperate people, but not necessarily to the sound of trumpets. He does so often very quietly. The tokens of His help are hardly obvious. Five loaves of bread the backside of Gath City Limit sign. As one leaves town, a Moabite ancestress, a prophet giving orders, not the usual arsenal of strength. But don't despise these, this desperate, lowly, lonely king to be. I hope you know another one just like him. Look with me at Matthew chapter 8 and verse 20 in closing. Somebody took that out of my Bible, I think. Oh, there it is. Matthew 8, 20. Now when Jesus, I'm at verse 18, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, and a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, what? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. David is a type of Christ, and his running from Saul is reflected in the life of Christ by the continual oppression toward him by religious leaders uh, of, of the, uh, Jerusalem and of the Roman army and everybody else that was around at that time. He had, and that's how David is. He's living in the cave, now he's out of the cave, and he finally took uh, um, Gad's advice, and he's living in the forest right outside of Judah. So I want you to remember from this message, what I want you to take home with you is that in our desperation, our panic reveals 
that we're relying upon ourselves and our own wit to help us handle the situation. You know, we like to think we're people able to handle the situation. Well, let me share something with you that should be relieving. You can't. You cannot handle the situation. It's too big for you. It's too much for you. And so what David was driven to do was rely upon the Word and the grace of God to take him through. And that's exactly where some of you are, and that's exactly what you need to do. Because panic is a big red alarm system saying I'm relying on myself and my resources. And faith is constructed, faith is built, faith is fed by the word and promises of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that this is in the Bible. We thank you that David is held up to us not as a model to imitate, but rather as a fellow struggler, one who felt the power of evil, the one who was in battle, just like we are. We are soldiers. We're in a war. We fight against the world, the flesh, the devil, every day, every moment. And we cannot rely upon ourselves. We are strengthened by your Spirit. We are enabled by the armor of God. We have spiritual power. And so I pray we would learn more and more to not rely upon ourselves, but to rely upon you and your word, Lord Jesus. Now, fathers, we continue to worship you. May we give as people who are grateful for your grace. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.